Again, good morning. And for those of you who've come in since, uh, since our, our very first greeting here this morning, my name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here at Summit, and it is a joy to be gathered here with you today. It's going to be okay. Those are words that we long to hear, especially if we are reeling in the face of a painful experience or an unexpected turn for the worse. We long to hear it and believe it. It's going to be okay. We want to believe those words in the face of a, a lost or broken relationship, a broken body, a broken promise. We long for the it's going to be okay. And yet in fairness, we're also asking, even if we never say it out loud, we are asking in our heads, why believe that? Why would I actually believe it's going to be okay? On what basis do you say these words? Because sometimes words are just that. They're just words. So the big question that follows in our heads is this. How do you know it will be okay? How could it actually be? What would that even look like? Now that, that's the real question, isn't it? I spent a lot of time in hospital this week, not for myself, but visiting people, numerous people who were all asking that question in their heads and longing to hear the answer, yes, it is going to be okay. And because of this day, because of Resurrection Sunday, I actually have an answer. I can actually say, yes, it is. It is going to be okay. And it's more than just a wish. It's more than just a hope. It's a reality of history. We have a hope that goes beyond the pain and even death itself. And I know a, a number of you uh, know the Parmeter family, and you've been praying for them and for the events that happened in Salmon Arm last Sunday during worship when there was a shooting at the church. And you who know the Parmeter family, that Dave, the son of, of Gordon, the one who was shot last, he and his family... We're, were a big part of Summit Drive Church before they moved to Salmon Arm. He wrote this on his Facebook wall about his dad following the shooting. And by the way, I've been talking with Dave and he was very happy for me to share this with you. I always ask permission on these kinds of things. He says this, this man went to be, went home to his heavenly father today. I will miss his craggy face and his rough hands. The sing of his hearing aid when I would hug him and the way he propped me and so many others up. We are all so sad. This is difficult beyond description, impossible without faith. I want to thank everyone who's been lifting our family up in prayer. Please pray for Paul Durkak, who was shot in the same incident and had surgery today for his wounds. I love my father. And if you knew him, you likely did too. What is Dave saying here in this moment? As he thinks about his dad, his very loved dad, the pain is there. It is real. It hurts. But Dave knows it's not over for dad. And it isn't. If Jesus was really raised, then Dave, in faith, can say what he says here, that dad went home. If this story 
of resurrection hope, if it's true, then you and I, we can hear these words of hope spoken over us. Even in those moments that, that, that feel like they, they're threatening to rob us of life and joy, to know that it is actually going to be okay. That through trust in Jesus, we can hear in the face of our, our fears about tomorrow, in the face of the pressures about today, in the teeth of even death itself, we hear these words, it's not over. And I was, my heart was broken as I heard of, of the bombings that happened in Sri Lanka at like eight different churches where Christians were killed, at least 200 of them, 450 are injured right now. For those who've been impacted by the church bombings today in Sri Lanka, it's not over. Their hope in Jesus gives them hope for eternity. Here's why. Let's listen into how Matthew tells the story of hope and of how God is speaking it to our hearts again today. And so let's pray. God, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear. Maybe for some of us, it's the first time or again in a way that we desperately need to today, the reality that it is not over for us either. Amen. This is Matthew 28, starting at verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Ha. Notice the irony here. These guys are there to guard a dead man. And they themselves, in fear, become like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He's not here. He is not here. He's not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now, I've told you. These women, just put yourself there for a moment. Matthew doesn't tell us why they're going to the tomb. The other gospel writers talk about it, but he just says they're going to look at the tomb. They weren't looking for Jesus alive, a tomb containing a dead body of their friend, guarded by the guards. That's what they're expecting. In their minds, it is over. This is an end of the story moment and kind of scene that they are walking into, except they don't. And to add to the irony here, unlike the guards, they actually have nothing to fear. Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who is crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. That, that, that line, just as he said, has the edge of rebuke to it, doesn't it? A bit of, weren't you paying attention? He told you and your other followers and the other followers that he would be raised again on the third day. You look surprised, but remember, he 
promised this. And perhaps we're not so unlike the women that day as well. For the promises that Jesus makes, the promise of his Holy Spirit who comes to enable us and be near us, empower us for mission, his promise to always be with it, it it extends to us even now. We might all too easily forget that and feel like we're alone. But his resurrection, it gives us reason to believe all of his promises. And maybe the promise you need most, maybe some of those promises are what comes next. Verse 8, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. I love that. Fear, but it's mixed with joy. I mean, their whole lives for the last three years or so had been taken up on this whole new course. And so today they have come with heavy hearts. Their eyes are probably still baggy with tears and tears. And now this wonderful, astonishing news from the angel of the Lord, no less. And so they go. They immediately follow the instructions. The women respond in faith despite their fear. Oh, that I might be like those women who in the face of the fears that I might have would respond in faith that yes, God is sending me too to be a part of his mission. Oh, that we as a a church might respond in faith despite our fears as well of where God is leading us and calling us to be a light to our neighbors. That we would become like these women in trust and obedience. And their fear, well, I mean, they've been with Jesus They know what happens to people who align themselves with the Jesus mission. They were there. They saw what happened to him. So that fear is probably very palpable for them. Yet they run anyways, despite their fear. They run to tell the other disciples. And look what happens next. Suddenly, Matthew tells us, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my disciples, my brothers, pardon me, go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. As I was reading this passage and rereading it again this week, I was struck just by Jesus' simple greeting. I had never really noticed it before or paid much attention to how simple it was. He doesn't say something dramatic. Behold, it is I, Jesus. Look at me. I've come back from the dead. He just says, greetings. Now, Jesus would have said it in Aramaic, and it would have been the word shalom, meaning peace. That in itself tells us why Jesus came, why he died What happens when he rises again? He comes to bring us peace. In fact, I met a young man this week um, who's new to town here in Kamloops, and he just looked up the church and ended up here on Monday night, and he said his life was in absolute chaos in the fall of last year. And He just showed up at a little church in Revelstoke and said, my life is a mess. What do I do next? And he came and put his trust in Jesus. And here's what he said. He said, I would describe that experience just like this peace that has come into my life. It's like... What was just a disaster has just been this settled 
calm that's come over it since Jesus has come in. That's what he gives us. That's what he gives to you and I when we put our trust there. But you know what? Matthew, he could have used the perfectly good Greek word for peace if he wanted that word here, but he doesn't. He chooses the very ordinary Greek greeting. Eugene Peterson translates it with exactly the right kind of language that we would use today. He simply puts, hello. That's what Jesus says when he first encounters his followers after being raised from the dead. That stopped me in my tracks this week. Why not a grand entrance? It's not like this isn't a meaningful moment after all. Jesus, now the risen Lord, his victory over death and sin and evil itself now complete, he chooses to relate to these scared female followers of his. They're already in shock from the day. They, not the male disciples, stayed around and saw what happened to him on the cross. You want to talk about trauma? They've gone through it. They were there. And Jesus doesn't come in overwhelming, booming. How does he come in? The way he's always related to them. Hello. There's a deep kindness there, isn't it? We see a generosity of spirit in Jesus relating gently to his already shocked female followers. Maybe we wish that sometimes Jesus would show up to us in a powerful, undisputably uh, overwhelming kind of way. Something undeniably powerful. We think, well, maybe if that happened to me, then I would really trust him. I think this greeting actually tells us something about that desire in us. See, Jesus reveals himself to these women and to us on his terms not ours. He comes to us and to them in a humble way where they can either take him or leave him. And they take him. Matthew mentions very simply, they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Yes, simple, but it's loaded with meaning. We heard already in Matthew 11, this invitation, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I'll put your life back together. These women, they simply come to him. They do it. The one who could not only promise rest, but actually give it. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped. This is not a figment of their imagination either. This is important. Matthew is reflecting that Jesus was not sort of spiritually raised with his body in the ground somewhere still. No. Matthew is signaling that this is a physical, bodily resurrection. See, the Christian idea of resurrection is not of being whisked away into a disembodied, floating on the clouds, otherworldly place. It is the reuniting of heaven and earth. It is physical. It is embodied just as Jesus was. There will be a resurrection of our physical bodies to live on the physical new heavens and new earth that God is bringing to bear when Jesus returns. And so this is a beautiful moment. These women, their lives had been given over to following Jesus, and now they had seen his body broken on the cross. But here they get their Savior back. 
clasped his feet. The one they loved, now present again physically. And this clasping is a signal of love and connection and devotion, but more. When you combine this idea of clasping his feet, coupled with the words worship here, this signals who they believe Jesus to be. See, Jesus is not only the Son of God in a unique relationship with the Father. No, he's more than that. He is God, the Son. When John saw an angel in Revelation 22, it says he fell down on, at his feet of the angel to worship. He fell down to worship at the feet of the angel, but he said to me, don't do that. Worship God. What does Jesus tell the women when they do fall down to worship at his feet? Does he tell them, don't do that, worship God? No. Why? Because he is himself one and the same with the living God. He knows who he is, and they seem to now as well. He really is God right there in the flesh. Matthew uses the language of God with us. And notice they don't say anything to Jesus, not in this telling of the story. They simply, perhaps quite quietly, get down on their knees and adore him. And if there is one thing that this day should produce in us, Resurrection Sunday calls forth that we do what the women here do. It's worship. So today we come to Jesus. Come to the feet of the one who has loved us all the way to the grave, whose life was broken to put ours back together, who experienced the horror of the cross to remove our sin and our shame. And we find him still alive too. He's present by his Holy Spirit. But so much more is to come. Here's how one scholar puts it. One day, after God empties our graves, when he raises us from the dead, we will see Jesus. When that happens, there won't be much to say at first. Instead, we'll probably do the same as these faithful women. Fall on our faces, wrap our arms around his blessed feet, and worship him. Knowing our ultimate enemy Death has been defeated forever. That's the response today and forever that is appropriate because of this day. As we sing in that old hymn, when faith becomes sight, it one day will, it will. Then we will see him as he is, clasp his feet and worship. It's not over for Jesus, and that means it's not over for us too if we put our trust in him. And there's another picture of Jesus' kindness that would be quite easy for us to miss. Notice what the women are instructed by Jesus to do. Go tell my brothers, pause. Go tell my brothers that little phrase, my brothers. It seems small. It seems maybe even unnecessary. Like a grace note in a musical score. See, in music, a grace note is written. It's that smaller size little one there. It's not necessary to play. 
It's not the main note, the, the melody line is the big ones, but that little one right beforehand adds this sense of flourish. It's grace. It makes it beautiful in a different kind of way. And we might say, oh, this, this sounds like a grace note, this little, my brothers, that's nice. The big word here, of course, is go tell them I'm alive, right? Well, maybe. But this little phrase, my brothers, is an incredibly significant word of grace for the disciples, the male disciples, and what they need at that moment. In fact, the center reality that Jesus is no longer dead, that he has been raised, they know that. But what it means, these guys need to know so desperately right now. Think of it. What's going through their heads right now? Every single one of them had abandoned Jesus. All of them said, we will never leave you. What did they do the moment trouble came? They got up and deserted him. All of them. Peter denies Jesus publicly three times. The rooster crows and he begins to weep and weep and weep because he had promised to never turn his back on Jesus and that's the exact thing he does. What's going through their heads at that moment? This grace note turns out to highlight the very melody of the whole Jesus story. This is what the cross and resurrection win for them and for us. He said, go back to the birth narrative of Jesus. And Joseph is, called, is told to call the baby Jesus. Why? Because Jesus means the Lord saves. Call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus saves and salvages them and us. In this little tender phrase, my brothers, there is restoration of what was lost and broken brothers is kinship language it's language that says you belong to me I want you still I haven't rejected you or cut you out of my life I want you and he says it to you and I today this Monday night, we were talking around our table at Young Adults. We were talking about how costly it is to follow Jesus. That he actually tells us that we're going to have to lay down our agendas if we're going to be on his page. He says this, if anyone wants to be my disciples, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. We were asking the question around our table, are you just a fan of Jesus or are you actually a follower? One young man thought about this and he asked, what happened to Peter? Was he out of the race after he denied Jesus? We talked about that scene in, in the Gospel of John where Jesus tenderly but firmly restores Peter. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then go feed my sheep. Three times he does this. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Three times that, that Peter denies Jesus, Jesus gives him the opportunity to be brought back into that sense of, yes, we're in community, in relationship. But then he calls Jesus, uh, Peter to actually be at the helm of the new mission and the new community that Jesus is launching called the church. Relief around the table filled my friend's face. He says, if there's second chances like Peter, then I'm a follower. And maybe that's your question this morning. 
As you came here today, maybe you're saying the same thing. If there's, if there's second chances, maybe Jesus calls me brother or sister today too. Now, I recognize that in a crowd this size, there are bound to be a number of people who are saying, but Dave, I just, I need more information. <laughs> this sounds so good. I just need to know a little bit more about that. Like, how do I know? Can I really trust this story? Well, we've just heard the report from Matthew of Jesus, legitimately, physically present to a group of women. One scholar, Dale Brunner, he, he's right. He says, so much depends on the truthfulness of this one word. If it's not over for Jesus, then it's not over for you or me either. There's a fresh start in the present. Forgiveness, as we just heard, and a new sense of purpose for the future, as we'll see in a moment. But more, that hope for the future. The hope that Dave Parmeter and his family are living in right now as they grieve, they do grieve with hope. But the reverse is also true then. If it is over for Jesus, how can I say that there's hope for me and for you, really? How can I tell you it's going to be okay if Jesus was not raised from the dead? How can I assure you that your sins are actually forgiven? I can't. Yeah, so much depends on the truthfulness of this one word. But then Brunner goes on to say this, and this matters too. So much depends on the truthfulness of this one word, yet there is no way Christians can prove it. No, we can't. If you want to doubt this word of Jesus' resurrection, you can. People actually doubt that the earth is a sphere as well. Um, you can doubt it. Or you can trust the evidence that God has given us and put your hope there. See, it's worth noticing that though it can't be proven, just like any historical event, we can actually look at the evidence and listen to the witnesses and come to appropriate conclusions. And when we do, I truly believe the evidence points convincingly to the reality of the resurrection and not away from it. Now, rather than repeating a lot of arguments about that, I photocopied four sermons of mine from different um, Easter Sundays where I talk much more about that, and they're underneath the TV in the foyer. I've made a number of copies. If you'd like just to take a text copy of it, you're welcome to do that. But here, here's what we do need to see this morning. If you find yourself with some hesitation about banking your life on the happenings of Jesus' resurrection, you're not alone. You can find alternate explanations for why there was an empty tomb. In fact, that's exactly what we see next, that very first Sunday morning. Listen to the text, verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you're to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If the report gets the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. To the day that Matthew wrote this down, that was the prevailing story. And Matthew is trying to write this Jesus biography. He's writing to a Jewish community who are wondering, can we really trust this Jesus story? This idea that he was raised from the dead. 
that he really is the promised king. They had heard this alternate story. And Matthew wants to tell us how it came about. That this story, but notice the story that, that, that we just read, it doesn't account for a lot of things. It doesn't account for why Christianity took root in the ancient world. Those ideas, I deal with those in my other messages, but we have to see some of these things here. The initial cover-up that Matthew speaks of, it's one way to try to account for an empty tomb, but it doesn't account for resurrection sightings or why the early Christian community thrives in the ancient world despite intense persecution. It doesn't answer the question as to why nearly all of the disciples met a horrible, violent death telling this story to others. You don't die for something that you know isn't true, do we? We need to note as well that Matthew, the writer, he credits women as the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. The first to announce the central message of the gospel, Jesus was crucified and now he's alive. Well, women were discounted as not being credible witnesses in the first century. So you don't create a story to gain traction in the ancient world by telling a story like this. If you wanted to fabricate this event, you would never have used women as the first witnesses. But Matthew and the other gospel writers are bound to tell the truth. As we'll see next, there is uncertainty as well, even from those who stood face to face with the risen Jesus. It says in verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus, physically present to them, but some doubted. This is hard to believe. It is, and there's no way around that. The disciples, they at least hesitate. Should we be worshiping Jesus? Is he really God? I mean, these are Jewish men. They know that there's, there's only one true God that is to be worshiped. Should we worship him? So they're hesitating probably on a number of fronts at this point. They're unsure what to do. But no matter, Jesus doesn't put them through some sort of intense test to measure their suitability as his witnesses. He doesn't see, hmm, how, how sincere are you about your faith? I see that there's some doubts in your faces. He doesn't do that. Here's what he does. Then he came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Notice, you might say, there's days, Dave, where I just hesitate about the Jesus story. I don't really know what to do. You know what Jesus is telling you to do? Go make disciples of all nations, teach them to obey Jesus. But I sometimes, I'm just unsure in my mind sometimes, Jesus says, go, make disciples of all nations, because all authority is mine. So he sends you and me, those who put our trust in him. He doesn't measure our sincerity before he sends us out. In fact, in the sending, I think that's where we often find, oh my goodness, God is faithful, he's real, and our faith grows as we simply step out in faith and begin to follow him to what he's calling us to. See, this event changed everything for those followers, and it still changes everything. 
not only does it give us hope for a life after this life, it gives us purpose and mission right now. Yes, Jesus will physically leave his disciples, but we read about at the end of Luke's gospel and the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles that the Holy Spirit actually comes down and is present. He makes Jesus present to us. For those who are with him, who are part of his mission to make Jesus known in the world, Jesus says, I will be with you. And he is and he continues to lead us into his kingdom global purposes. In the Switchfoot song 24, John Foreman sings out these words, you're raising the dead in me. I am the second man, and he is. And I've experienced that kind of new, fresh hope, and I pray and trust that you will too. To know we can be a different kind of person the self-centeredness that old man dealt with as we trust in Jesus and what he does for us on the cross. He bears our sins in his own body so that we could be free of that self-centered sin way of living. But more, his resurrection means that we're, we're not locked into that self, me first, if only I can achieve this or that, then maybe my life will mean something. He gives us hope for life in the present in the present tense even. You know, when we look at the life of Gord Parmeter, his family, they are confident that he is like really and truly in the presence of Jesus right now. But that's not all we should see here. The promise of eternal life is key, but the resurrection changes our present. Cole uh, Wing Tringham was one of the many, many foster children who was taken in by Gord and his wife Peggy. In an interview we read, this is what Cole said, Parmeter treats strangers like family. Really, that reflects how Gord saw the world. When he saw someone begging for just enough money to buy a coffee from Tim Hortons, Gordon would take them inside and pay for whatever breakfast they wanted with no limits on the price, he said. For Gordon, everyone was family. That was the most, the single most important thing he ever taught me. That's the kind of thing that resurrection hope gives you is a focus outside of yourself. It's a focus to be able to say you're family and to embrace others, even those who are different, who are broken. Their granddaughter wrote that Gordon's death was senseless, but that the family is choosing to honor him by loving others. We regard his attacker and his family with love, not hostility, as Jesus loved those who nailed him to the cross. Still, we're sad beyond description. Yeah, it's appropriate for them to be sad. It really is. They are missing something deeply. But the hope that they have in Easter transforms that so that they're able to actually love for Gordon, they know it's not over. And for his family, it's not over. And for you and me, it's not over. Not if we place our trust here, here in what Jesus has done. Take his life into us. That's resurrection life in the present tense. It's the kind of response that we see from, from Gord, the way he lived, and his family now. 
That's what Jesus does as we take his life into us. He transforms us. So the question that comes to us this morning is, will you follow Jesus into life? Life that is eternal, but life that starts now in the present tense, not with you at the center, but with him at the center. Not with your agenda, but with his agenda. Would you say yes to that? You know, I, I had the opportunity to connect with, um, with Paul and his family in hospital each day this week. I met them to pray, to encourage them. And we were able to pass on some financial support that came from your generosity, that you're giving to the Benevolent Fund. We were able to say to that family, we, we can support you in, in, in this way. See, resurrection hope doesn't just lead us to trust God for the future, but to live and love in the present. And the family wanted me to pass this note on to you. The longer version of it is up on the um, bulletin board by the, uh, by the office there. But they write, we are so grateful for the love we have received from your beautiful church. My sisters and I couldn't possibly thank you enough for the way that you've taken care of us financially, emotionally, and spiritually during this time of trauma. On behalf of our dad, we want to express our deepest gratitude. You can go read the longer note in the foyer, and I encourage you to do that. But you need to know as well that your prayers really matter. You know, uh, when the surgeon checked Paul's leg this past week, when he looked at it, he, he recoiled in a bit of shock, and, and his daughters were thinking, oh no, this is going to be bad, and they were bracing themselves. But he was shocked, not because of how bad it looked, but how good it looked. He didn't know how it would look like that after only a few days. We've been praying for his healing, that God would do it quickly, whether that was through medical means or something miraculous. His daughter writes this, his healing is progressing so quickly that the surgeon is completely shocked. And we credit that to the diligent prayers of the body of Christ. Resurrection hope is hope in the living Jesus who is present with us now, who hears your prayers and answers them as he chooses, but he does answer them. We are living in a living hope. It is not over, not even close. Let's pray as the worship team comes. Lord Jesus, as we listen to this text speaking of you this morning, inspired to be written the way it was by your Holy Spirit. We just give you thanks. We thank you for the encouragement it brings to our hearts today. And Lord, I just want to just, as we, as we prepare our hearts just to sing a final song and to respond to you, Lord, I, th I think of those next steps that you're calling us into. For some of us, that next step is to simply move out of apathy into a kind of adoring that we see in the women that day to worship you with full, whole hearts. Not, even, not only today, but throughout the year, each day, to praise you with that kind of thanksgiving that you are alive. So Lord, if there's those of us for whom our hearts are sort of cold or numb or apathetic towards you, would you wake, awaken us today to worship? For others, Lord, they may be saying, I, I need more information. I need to know you more, Jesus. I'm interested. God, would you open their hearts to you today? And maybe, Lord, there's some here who are saying, I need resurrection hope. I've been living for me. I've been living in chaos. 
or I've been living with just this deep emptiness. I know there's more to life, but where is it? Jesus, I pray that today they would turn to you and trust you to know that they can come to you in faith and say, Jesus, I, I trust that you love me, that you died to pay for everything I've done wrong, everything I've thought, I've said, and I trust your forgiving work. And I believe that it's true because you were raised to the de- from the dead, confirming all your promises. Lord, for those who are praying that today, I, I, just, I just ask that you'd be near them and that they would just be able to come to you in trust and say, I put my trust here. We give you thanks today, Lord, that there is a hope, a living hope. Amen.